Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 22nd, 2024, and my guest is historian and author Hillel Cohen of Hebrew University. He's the author of many books. In 2015, he published Year Zero of the Arab-Israeli Conflict, 1929, which is our topic for today. Hillel, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much for having me. I want to let listeners know that there may be parts of this conversation that are not appropriate for children, so you may want to listen first. Uh, this is a remarkable book, uh, partly because it illuminates a year of the conflict that indeed can be described as year zero, but it's equally remarkable for the perspective that Hello brings to the year and his deep commitment as an historian to understand how each side of the conflict experiences its own narrative in the moment and the challenge that provides to the historian. In addition, it's a remarkable and very painful book because the events of 1929 are not so different from the events of October 7th and its aftermath, uh, the seemingly senseless murder and rape of defenseless civilians, and the attempts by each side to justify or explain what happened. Uh, and in the course of doing that, uh, it's quite can be quite disturbing because whatever your perspective on this conflict is, Hillel's book uh, forces you to be aware of the other side, and that's very uh, can be very uncomfortable. And to add one more element of pain, some of the deaths of 1929, just as they were on October 7th, were the murder of people working toward coexistence and mutual respect, people who would help the other. And it's very heartbreaking. So let's go back to 1929, and of course, you call it year zero, but you start before 1929 because you have to. Nothing happens in a vacuum. But uh, many of our listeners know nothing about the so-called Hebron Massacre. Uh, in Hebrew, Hebron is the town Hebron in English. So-called Hebron Massacre, other massacres that took place. And as you chronicle in your book, Hillel, the the deaths of Arabs at the hands of Jews, which are as, not as well known to the uh, those who uh, promote the Jewish narrative. Uh, so let's begin, though, with the Jewish narrative of what happened in 1929, and then we'll try to look at it from the Arab perspective. So what is the standard, not the, the best you can do at, at the standard, what's the standard summary of what happened in 1929 uh, that that Jews tell one another? I would say that the the Israeli or Zionist or Jewish narrative of 1929 is based on the very fundamentals of Zionist narrative in general. And the Zionist narrative in general is that we Jews came to Palestine as Zionists, I mean, meaning mainly, but also before the British conquest of, of, of Palestine in 1917, in order, first of all, to establish a national home for the Jews, but the, the the idea was to live in peace with the Arab. I mean, the the, the self image of the, of Zionism was of a peaceful uh, movement, uh, which, which has a full right to settle in Palestine, and with the very best intentions to live with the uh, Arab communities of the country. So. Twelve years after the Balfour Declaration, we are in the year 1929. The, the, the numbers of uh, Jews in Palestine are increasing uh, during this period, and Jews establishes established, you know, kibbutzim and moshavim and expanded their uh, their entrenchment in the, in, in the country. The Arabs didn't like it, and. In 1929, it was not for the first time because there were anti-Zionist anti riots in 1920 and 1921 in Jerusalem and in Jaffa and in other places, but 
mainly in a small scale, but in 1929, the attacks on Jewish communities were in much larger scale. So it started in Jerusalem, and it started in Jerusalem because of Jerusalem is a holy city, and Jerusalem is a place of Al-Aqsa Mosque or Al-Haram Sharif or the Temple Mount. And there was a rumor, and it was not only a rumor, I have to think how, how exactly to define it, but it started as a rumor that the Jews want to blow up the mosques on Temple Mount in order to build the, 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 the third Jewish temple. Now, what the Jews actually did was very far from this. What they did was to pray in the Western Wall, but to establish a, a kind of fence between men and women in the Western Wall. Now, the Jews, the Western Wall is known almost to everyone is holy place and a prayer, place of prayer for Jews for, for centuries. But actually, it is also a place, holy place for the Muslims. It is called in Arabic El-Burak, meaning the place in which the Prophet Muhammad put or uh, parked his, his holy horse when he ascended to heaven. So this is also holy to the Muslims. And, and in addition to that, it is, it is a waqf land. Waqf land mean, meaning a holy Muslim uh, uh, place. But for centuries, the, the Muslims allowed the Jews to pray in this place. The condition was that the Jews keep the status quo. They, they changed nothing. So they would have prayed standing. There were no chairs. There were no tables. And there was no fence between men and women. They prayed together. So Just to clarify, uh, if you've ever been to the Western Wall or uh, in Hebrew, the Kotel in Jerusalem today, it's a huge plaza, but until 1967, it was a very narrow alley abutting uh, Arab homes. And it is the, the Western Wall, the Kotel in Hebrew, is the supporting wall of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is an enormous plaza uh, where the Temple of Solomon was built, the Second Temple was built, and where after Islam was established – uh, two very important mosques uh, were built on these spots, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And um, I did not know until I read this book that even this area of the Western Wall, which again is a supporting wall of the plaza called the Temple Mount in Hebrew, uh, in, in Jewish tradition, uh, that that is also sacred to the, to, to the Muslims. So in Islam – and in Judaism, these are very sacred and holy places, and there are, of course, many restrictions about who is allowed to be there and under what conditions, both within the religion and those that are not in the religion, as in many uh, situations like this. There, there's a lot of um, a lot of rules. So uh, carry on. So, uh, so keep going. So, so in, 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 actually, in September 28, this was the Yom Kippur, uh, in which the fence was was put by the Jews, and immediately after it was put by the Jews, a, 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 a British officer came and take it out. And from this date, the tension between Jews and Arabs, or Muslims and Jews, around the Temple Mount, and then in Jerusalem, and then in the whole country, increased and increased. Then in August 29, at the beginning of August, there were some clashes between Jews and Arabs in Jerusalem, in small scale or football play, play in one place and near the Temple Mount or, or, or the Western Wall in another point of, 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 uh, uh, of conflict until the day of, of, uh, of the, the 23rd of August in which thousands of uh, Muslims who went out of the prayer of, of uh, Juma, of the Friday prayer in, in, in Al-Aqsa Mosque, they went out from the mosque towards the Jaffa Gate and the Damascus Gate the two main gates of the old city of Jerusalem towards the Jewish neighborhoods, which were close to these gates and started to attack Jews in, in their way. This, so, so, so this is a, the beginning and we are now telling the Zionist narrative. It was out of nowhere. 
they try to attack us because they they imagine that we are trying to blow up the the, the mosque. We don't have such intentions whatsoever. There were some clashes in some neighborhoods in Jerusalem, and then the day after, on Saturday, the small Jewish community of Hebron was attacked by mob. Palestinians, Muslims from Hebron and from surrounding villages attacked the Jews of Hebron in their homes. And the Jews of Hebron, the, most of them were very veteran in the, in, in, in the country. Some of them, since the, the, the expulsion from, from Spain, some, some arrived in Hebron only in the late 19th century, but it was community that had relatively good relations with the, with, with the local Arabs to the degree that the local Jewish community refused to receive uh, 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 members of the Haganah, of the Jewish defense forces, who wanted to come to Hebron to protect them, they told them, no, there is no need. We are in good relations with the Arabs. So if, if you come with, with, with weapons, it would deteriorate the situation. So, of course, they didn't come. And the Jews were attacked by knives, by lawns, by, 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 you know, mainly by, 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 by white weapons. And 69, 66 Jews were killed in Hebron in their homes by their neighbors, actually, most of them by, by their neighbors. At, at, the, at, the, at the day, or actually in the same day, Jews were attacked also in, in Moza, a week after in Sfat, attacks in Jaffa, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem continued. Some Moshavim in Kibbutzim also were attacked, but, but, but they were armed. So there were much less casualties there. And at the end, at the end, there were 133 Jews who were killed in, 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 in this uh, wave of, uh, of violence. You know, the saying is history doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it does rhyme. The attacks of October 7th uh, from Hamas coming out of Gaza were called the Al-Aqsa Flood. And it was a reference to the claim uh, that Jews wanted to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque today. Uh, so this is a very old story. Uh, the next twist of the story is the, the Palestinian perspective. And you've spoke, you've read many of the available, if not all, the contemporaneous accounts from Arab sources of of the time and after. And you've spoken to Palestinians today. And of course, what is human and difficult is that um, there's not there's a very different perspective than the one you just told. For most Israelis and most Jews that I know, you're, what the story you just told is the standard story. The Jews were, yes, there was a serious question of whether it was right or wrong to try to populate the land of Palestine and create a Jewish state. But nothing could possibly excuse or explain even this, these events of um, these deaths. And, of course, many, many other people were, were injured and we're not 100% sure, but there, there's some evidence uh, of rape. We don't know how much. You point out sides often, the victors often uh, underestimate the amount of sexual violence and the victims often overestimate it or make it more lurid. But uh, the bottom line is that's a horrible story. And you, in your course of your research, and trying to understand the Palestinian narrative today, how Palestinians today look back on what people at the time experienced almost 100 years ago. Uh, you discovered an event, and you speak about it. There's a wonderful video of a lecture you gave. We'll put a link up to it about how challenging it was for you to realize that there had been some Jewish uh, atrocities as well at that time. So talk about the On family and uh, uh, Simcha Hinkas and what happened there. As best you well, can. It is complicated. It's there are many details. It, it's hard to understand exactly what happened, but we have a pretty good idea of the generality. Well, I, 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 maybe I'll say a few words about how I started to write the book and what may, may, made me write it in the way I wrote. So I, I'm a historian and I work in archives. And one day I, I, I was 
in the library, actually in the Ibera, in the library of the Hebrew University. And there is a famous book of, of, of a Palestinian writer. His name Mustafa Dabab, very interesting writer. And he wrote a, a kind of lexicon, geographical lexicon of, of, of Palestine. And I, I, I read uh, about Jaffa. And when I read about Jaffa, he wrote, according to years, a kind of uh, chronology of Jaffa. And when he wrote about the year 1929, he wrote in the year 1929, the Jews attacked, attacked the Arabs of Jaffa and one Jew who was also policeman in the British, in the British uh, police entered the house of, uh, of uh, Muslims in Jaffa and he killed five people, two women, two kids and, and, and an old person. And this is the year 1929. Now for me, that 1929 is the year of the massacre of Hebron. I read this description and I said, I cannot say, you know, in a podcast how I said it, but I said, what is it? Is it a kind of oriental imagination? How come I, I, I was, I, I wrote my PhD about mandatory Palestine, about Palestinian collaborative Zionism during the mandate time. So I knew more or less the history of, of mandate period. And I said, so 1929 Jews, attacked Arabs in Jaffa. This is a story of 1929. And and uh, I said, okay, I, I just photocopied the, the two pages of this description. I put it in the drawer. I mean, it was 20 years ago. <laughs> and I continued my work. Five, six years later, I, I, I was working in the Haganah archive, which is part of the Israeli army archives. And I found a document from 1913 in this document, an officer in the Haganah described how he bribed a British, of, uh, a British judge, or actually the attorney general, in order to change the, 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 the way he would talk in the court about a case of murder of uh, an Arab family by a Jewish policeman. I said, gling, gling. I mean, this is, this might be the same story. Okay. So now I have a kind of Jewish source for the same story. And I had the name of the accused and I started to look for details of the story. And I found, yeah, this is true. There was a person in the Haganah who did exactly that. And of course, he, 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 the details are not the same. He, he killed only four people. The baby was three years old and not one year old. You know, these small details which were, were not accurate because I reached also the files of the court when I continued. But okay. Now I said, this is very surprising story. And when I said to myself, this is very surprising story. I immediately asked, immediately I asked myself, surprising to whom? I mean, it was surprising for me, but I'm sure that, that for Palestinians, this is not surprising because they know that the Jews of the time kill innocent Arabs because they know what happened in, 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 in Essin, and they know what happened in Tarkasem and they know what happens in, in Gaza and they know. So this was a moment in which I understood that what is surprising for me is not surprising for other people. And what is surprising for them is not, and vice versa. So I said, okay, we have here totally two different stories. And this is what I want to tell. I want to tell how come that we have events that everybody knows what happened, but what they know is totally different. But now I have a, another problem. The other problem is, First of all, I realized that when I read Arab source, I don't believe. And when I read it in the same, the same material in a Jewish source, I do believe. So I have to think why. There are good reasons because when someone tells about atrocities committed to him, he might be less reliable when, than when he tells about, okay, this is one reason, but it's not the only reason. The, the main reason I think is that we tend to believe what we want to believe. This is who we are. And this is also who I am. But I thought whether to take on myself the mission of trying to tell the story from both sides in the way that both sides would tell them. Of course, it would make, might be better that to do it with the Palestinian colleague or whatever. This didn't work. 
So I did it myself and tried to be as honest as possible. And for me, it was also a, 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 an opportunity to tell the Zionist story, the Jewish story of 1929 to Arab audience. Because this book, I wrote it in Hebrew and I wrote it to, in Hebrew to Israeli audience, to Hebrew readers, but it was translated both to English and to Arabic. And I think this is the first book in Arabic in which the details of what happened in Hebron in 1929 are written and what happened in Tzfat, in Safad, in 1929 are detailed. It never appeared in any book, even of the great Palestinian scholars that I admire, they would write, in 1929, there were clashes between Jews and Arabs. In 1929, there were riots against Jews, but nobody would detail, you know, the, 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 the cruel events in the way that we, let's say, in the Israeli narrative would. What kind of reception did it get in the Arabic world? First of all, the fact that uh, an important uh, publisher was ready to publish it, and there was an event in Ramallah about the book, which I was not invited because of the BDS, which is fine, I mean. Because of the... Why were you not invited? Because of the BDS, because of the, of the boycott on, on Israeli scholars. The BDS stands for Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions. Uh, and, and therefore, the event, you were not allowed to attend? It's not, not allowed, not invited. I don't know okay. if it's the same so, or not. Go ahead. But did you hear something about it? Did you get some um, reports? Yeah, I, I, I heard not, not fully. And uh, some, some, there were some, some, uh, some people wrote reviews, some Palestinians wrote reviews, but this is Israeli-Palestinians and uh, not Ramallah. So Israeli-Palestinians wrote reviews. I think Ayman Ode was one of them. Which was very, 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 I mean, he, he liked it very much because he also believe in, believes in, yeah, we should know, we should study the history and, and know the truth and so on and so forth. And also I have to, to add to this, I mean, also to the main story that hundreds of Jews of Hebron were saved by Arabs in Hebron during the riots. So when you, when you are, Trying to tell the whole story, you tell also the the the, 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 the narrative of the, of the people who were saved and the people who saved, and then you have a different narrative than than this of the good guys and the bad guys, and we are the good and they are the bad. But you br I, I bring two stories, and in each story I bring also the the the, the savers and the and the killers. So uh, and and we have a, a multi multi dimensional narrative of the, of the events in general. I, I can't help but quote Richard Feynman. I think I'm going to get it close to 100% accurate. The, the first principle is you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. And I, it's a beautiful part of your book uh, in the lecture that I mentioned where you confront the fact that certainly we like to think that an historian would, of course, be open to all the facts but historians often are grinding, we say in English, grinding an ax. They're telling a narrative and they cherry pick. They leave out the things that ruin the story and they exaggerate or not careful or don't examine as, as closely the things that enhance the story or make it more dramatic. And um, so I, I just, I salute your honesty, at least as far as I understand that I'm not a historian. It's hard for me to know whether you've done what you've tried to do well, but it strikes me that you've done a remarkable job. Um, so okay. if ahead. I can add to that, I mean, part of my, I would call it even methodology when, 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 when I found the, 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 the documents and the memories about, about the events. First of all, for me, every, every document, every document who makes me uneasy, this is, I know that I have to use it. I mean, this is a methodology. So this is point number one, because especially if I don't want to, to, if, if I want to tell one sided narrative, it's different. So, so, so you just ignore it. But if you want to, to tell the whole stories, so this is exactly why the story about the, the, the murder in, in, in Jaffa 
was for me, I mean, mind blowing. I mean, no, this is what I need. I need to understand. And then I need to understand, and this is very easy, why the Palestinians prefer to tell this story and not the story of Hebron. Okay, this is very clear. Why? But, but, but these are the methods. And the other one is about my own emotions. And this helped me very much to, to understand the story in general. Because when I, when I read about, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew. Hillel Cohen cannot be but a Jew, right? <laughs> and, 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 and when I read about about an incident where Jews were killed, it really hurts me and I, I feel deep sorrow. And when I read about, about incidents in which Palestinians were killed, I feel different. I mean, I feel some sorrow and I might feel some anger, but it's really different. I, I, I must admit. And I mean, my mother was, came to Jerusalem in 1929. It's not, I'm not a lie. I, I mean, I'm part of the story. I'm part of the story. But when I, when I follow my emotions in this way, it helps me. And as a, as a historian to understand how narratives are built, because I, and this was my, 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 my conclusion that narratives are not built from up down. It's not that the Ministry of Education tells us how to think about 1929. Not at all. It is our friends, it's, uh, it's ourselves, it's our kids, it's our parents. When, 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 we, when we see them cry about one thing and they don't cry about other. So this, this become part of our emotional me, right? Self. And, and when they don't cry, they say, hmm, this is how, ah, or they're happy. So, 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 so we built our narratives according to where our emotions are and not according to what a minister of whatever tells us. And I learned it from my own emotions. This is what, uh, so the, what I told you. This is part of my methodology. So in economics, we would call this an emergent phenomenon. It's bottom-up rather than top-down. It's not any one person deciding what the narrative is. It gets told and retold uh, in the same way that a language develops. Some things get used. Some things get dropped. Uh, it's alive. And after a while, it sort of hardens around a certain story. Um, I just want to echo what you said. Uh, some of my listeners and some of my readers for the things I've written about this moment in 2024 – complain that I'm too even-handed. Uh, I should be, what am I giving ammunition to the other side for? I should just tell the good parts. The, I'm, a, I'm a Jew. I'm a Zionist. I live here. I moved here. I became a citizen. Uh, and I'm very proud of, proud of that. I have no embarrassment about it. But uh, I under, And I understand the urge to only listen to the things that make you feel good and ignore the things that make you feel bad. And and just to, but I but I can't help it. As sort of my ethos of this program and and who I am, I think it's important to understand the complexity. Uh, you know, the many ways the the motto of this show is it's complicated. It doesn't mean they can't have a moral position. At the end of this, I want to talk about the challenges that this richer picture poses for one's own views and confidence in what in what we do. But but the point is is that. I, certainly as an historian, I think, and as a thinking human being, you should be aware of the complexity, the complexity of the world. The only thing I want to add to your uh, discovery of this murder that took place in Jaffa, uh, it, it, it became part of the Palestinian narrative. It's well known among Palestinians, and most Jews know nothing about it. Now, we can debate, and we might, about whether the murder of five people by a crazy policeman enraged by what he saw earlier that day, the morality of that, was it, how can that be equated with, and so on, you know, the murder of 166 people, the terrorizing of thousands. Those are serious, deep, deep questions. But I think it's important to know the facts. And, and the facts that I would add that you just pointed out that are also run all through your book is that not everybody joined in. Uh, some people didn't join in. Some people did more than not join in. They protected the other side. They protected the other side at the risk of their own life. It's hard to do. It's rare. It's in, in that way. It, in some sense, it's the exception that proves the rule. But it, 
also, that also cannot be uh, ignored. Um, I want to talk. Let, let's talk about um, the moral high ground. Um, when I talk about listeners or, or friends even who are upset that I present, say, a more complex picture, one of the things that's uncomfortable about that and one of the reasons that we ignore the stories that make our side look bad is we want to hold the moral high ground. We want to feel that our side is doing the right thing. Why is that so important to us? Why is it not enough to say, well, I don't care whether it was right or wrong. We had the power, whichever side it was. We did some things and a story. Why do we like to, why is it so important to us to feel virtuous, especially about things that the other side calls evil? Not just like, well, it wasn't so great. Evil. We want to often say to ourselves, those things were not just not evil. They were moral. Yeah. This is a very good question for now in 2024, as you mentioned before. And I mean, I mean, Israeli soldiers in, in, in Gaza, they, they are sure that they do the most moral thing in the world. And by the way, I don't know how many thousands Palestinian kids were killed. And the same is true for, for, for Hamas. They, they are sure that they do the right thing. It's not that they, you know, they say, okay, maybe right. Maybe. No. This is the time to do it, and we should do it. Killing uh, uh, Jewish civilians now is, is right and is moral. And I think this is a very basic human need, I mean, to, to feel moral, because the humans are not. They are also about power, and they use power. But, you know, always we say you have to be crazy in order to feel that only power talks. You don't want to be like that. You say, okay, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, yeah, he, only power, or, or North Korea. But most nations and groups and people, they would say, no, we are moral. People want to feel moral. And, and because this is to be human. So when I look at the, uh, let's go back to 1929. It's a little more comfortable uh, than 2024 right now. But when I, we'll come back to 2024. But when I look at 1929 and I look at these two narratives, uh, the thousands who terrorized Jews in Jerusalem, in Hebron, in Sfat, in Moza, um, and then, okay, you're trying to be even-handed, Hillel. It's very impressive. So you found a policeman who killed five people in um, in Jaffa, in, in uh, Jaffa, or Jaffa in English. Or, uh, yes, they were worried that we might, the Jews might destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and therefore they got enraged. Um, do I want to keep score? And one of the horrible things, I'm going to come back to 2024. One of the horrible things for me is this claim. I think the I think the war in Gaza that Israel is waging is the right thing to do. Uh, it doesn't mean everything that Israel does there is moral. Uh, but here's what I find strange. What I find strange is that people say, well, you know, only 1,200 people died in Israel on October 7th. And 250 or so people were kidnapped and dozens of women were raped. But 25,000 Gazans have been killed as if it's just a scorecard. So I think one of the complexities of either 1929 or, or 2023 of October is this idea that this, you don't want to keep score. And certainly our moral anger or Better yet, our outrage is not about numbers. It's a visceral, emotional response. And so I want you to respond to that thing about the numbers, but then I want you to answer the question, if I can always see the other side, doesn't that justify their actions? Don't you, as a historian... Because you can tell me a story that they were afraid we're going to destroy Al-Aqsa Mosque and there was this policeman in, in Jaffa that killed five people on, who were defenseless. 
then is anything goes? Is it is it all equal? So can you make a moral judgment at all? It is a very good uh, question, but you know everybody does moral judgment, and everybody judges according to what he was thinking before. So, so the question is why our moral judgment is better than the Palestinian moral judgment. So even the moral judgment is not of even-handed judge. It is our. So, of course, we, we, we believe in our moral judgment. So the, 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 you had a couple of questions. So first of all, why to write it? And the reason to write it is I, I think that if each side continues to believe in his own narrative without knowing the other narrative and his own moral judgment, believing that this is the own possible moral judgment, will continue to fight forever. When we understand, I, I mean, this is what happened to me, when I understand that the other narrative, it's not about sport, it's, it's, it's about, about, about being, uh, being uh, strong enough, being valuable, being important for them, I have to take it in, into into consideration. It, it becomes, in my case, it, be, it became part of my own narrative. I mean, yeah, this is part of my narrative, the Palestinian narrative now, and uh, it doesn't. It, it has nothing to do with justifications. Like you, you do not justify Israeli soldiers who would shoot uh, uh, by intention a, a Palestinian kid, but you accept the general, you know, uh, movement of the Israeli army. Okay. So, so we, 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 we can start to challenge our own narrative to see the other narrative, to understand the, 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 the world better. And as I said, for me, it has much more meaning when the Palestinians do the same. And this is why, why I told you it was important for me that it w- would be translated into Arabic. Of course, it can, it cannot be one-sided. I mean, both sides have to understand Many things about the other side that they today they do not understand. Now I, I go back to the very general idea of, uh, of of both narratives. I mean, for the Zionist narrative, as I said, I mean Jews came here to live in peace, and we were attacked by the Arabs. What is a Palestinian Arab narrative? Palestinian Arab narrative is that the Zionists came here in order to make our land our country into a Jewish country, and all what we do is self-defense. So we have our two nations that believe that everything that they do is self-defense. When we bomb Gaza, it's self-defense. And when they attack, it's self-defense. Okay. So everybody has moral uh, uh, justification for, for, for what they do. And so now what? So I was also attacked in the, as you were attacked. I mean, no, you give them ammunition. No, how can you be even-handed? You are a Jew. How come that you care about the Arabs the same way you care about Jews? Actually, I, I, I'm not sure I care the same way as I thought before. But even if I care about only about my kids and about my family and about my tribe, I think that the best way to protect them is to widen our understanding of the reality and act within the wider understanding and not to be close to see only ourselves and our just case and, and, and ignore others because ignoring others brings October 7. So I, th- I think one of the frustrations for Jews around the world, certainly here in Israel, Israelis, is a feeling that the, well, we are often at least aware there's another narrative. We may not agree with it 100%. Is a separate problem, which, of course, your book highlights, which is that the facts in each narrative are often different because of our natural uh, confirmation bias. But, you know, there's a there was before October 7th and there has been for the last 30 or so years here, a very, very strong movement on the left of the Israeli political spectrum supporting Arab Palestinian rights, uh, supporting a, a Palestinian state. Uh, decrying and criticizing uh, strong, forceful responses to to Palestinian terrorism. And we don't feel that coming from the other side. And, you know, when I deal with that in my own thoughts, 
uh, personally, I like to believe, and it may not be true, that there are people who can empathize with the Israeli narrative, but they can't speak up because they live in a world, tragically, where there isn't freedom of speech. In Israel, we have freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. There are massive, massive <laughs> protests happening in, in Israel against the current government for all kinds of reasons, not just one. They get <laughs> more than one reason that people turn come to the streets and, and criticize the government. But in the Gaza, if you do that, they kill you. So I, I like to think that there is the potential for the kind of sharing we're talking about. We interviewed uh, Yossi Klein-Alevi on the program. I interviewed Yossi Klein-Alevi on the program. And his book very much put the two different narratives at the center. His book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, didn't get that big a reception in in the West Bank and in Gaza. Um, but again, I like to think maybe that's because they live in a something close to a police state. But no. uh, I think that's frustrating for those of us who are trying to be more open-minded. Do you feel that way? No, I, I, I feel totally different. I don't think that uh, Palestinians do not uh, empathize with Zionists or with the Zionist project because they live in a police state. Maybe because they live in under occupation. Maybe. In the sense that if you take I mean, the best example, of course, is, 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 is the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Palestine, you can see two schools now, right? You can see more than two schools, but you can see Hamas on the one hand, one hand and you can see Mansour Abbas on the other hand. So how comes... Mansour Abbas being the head of the Palestinian Authority? No, no. Mansour Abbas of the Islamic Movement... Of Israel, the member of the Knesset. Oh, the Knesset, sorry. They have the yeah, same last not, name. One is Mahmoud. Mansour and one is Mahmoud, Mahmoud. sorry. Yeah. So Mansour Abbas, he came from the same school of thought. He came from the Muslim Brotherhood uh, organization. And he, now a member of the Knesset, and he believes in a partnership between Jews and Arabs, between Muslims and Jews. He even declared that he can accept Israel as a Jewish state. And he condemned what Hamas did in October 7th. So how comes that from the same school of thought you have such different, and they pray the same prayers, they have the same books that they read, not only the Holy Quran, but also the books of, of, of the leaders of, of, of the, the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, the, the main reason is the, the difference between if you live in a relatively re equality or you live under occupation. It's not the same. So it's not about, and, and I, I did a research about that, so this was the, the, the only time that I did a quantitative research and I, I, I gave uh, a, a questionnaires to hundreds of uh, Palestinian students for education, both in the West Bank and inside Israel, and asked them questions about narratives and about rights, about peace with Israel and so on and so forth. And the interesting point for me in this, uh, the result, in the result were that about the historical narrative, about the rights of the, of the Palestinians, there was no debate. This is our land. The Jews came here and they, they tried to take the land from us. They don't have, I mean, they didn't have right to do that and so on and so forth. But when it came to what should be done, the Palestinian Israel, they, most of them were, first of all, against the armed struggle, against using violence. Second, they, they were more accepting the, 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 the presence of Jews here. And what they wanted was a kind of partnership. And the Palestinians and the West Bank, I mean, they can be from the very same families as you know, Palestinian and Israel and the West Bank. They say, no, the Jews have no right here. They have to, to, to go wherever they came from, from, and so on and so forth. Of course, this is, it, it was after the second intifada because the same, the same questions when, when they were asked, before the year 2000, also many Palestinians in the West Bank accepted the idea of Jewish presence and Jewish sovereignty on, on part of Palestine. So what we have here is the, the condition of living, the political options that they have, and so on and so forth, and not the police state of the Palestinian Authority, which is also, this is a totally different story. And if I may add another point. The other point is that you said, you said, uh, you know, there is a strong uh, 
a peace movement in Israel, there is a strong uh, protest in Israel against the government, and so on and so forth. That peace movement is smaller today than it was on October 6th, for better or for worse. Sure. But Palestinians, many years, they told me, we don't care about what you say, we care about what you do. And if in, in, in when, when Oslo agreements between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization were signed in 1993, they were 100,000 settlers in the West Bank. During the seven year of, of Oslo process, before the eruption of the Second Intifada, there were 200,000 Jews settling in the West Bank, meaning the number of settlers doubled. For Palestinians, this was the most important factor. They said, you are telling us that you want peace and you want to negotiate and you might be ready to establish a Palestinian state in the West Bank. And meanwhile, you send hundreds, dozens of thousands of, of, of Jews inside. So we don't care about what you say. Today we have almost half million. I mean, 480,000 settlers in the West Bank. So who cares about, you know, 50 people who held, or 500 people who held Palestinians to reach Israeli hospitals. It's nothing. I mean, the Palestinians, I mean, the people, I guess, Palestinians who were helped by these people wouldn't go to kill them. But for us, the Palestinians, it means nothing. This This is what I understand from what they tell me. Okay, there are nice people among you. There are nice Palestinians who who saved Jews in 1929. It has nothing to do with the great story of the national debate here. You want the whole land from the river to the sea. And this was a decision. This, this is part, was part of what the last Netanyahu government declared. That this, the, 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 all the territory between the river and the sea is for the Jews and there will, there will not be uh, another national entity in this territory. So what exactly you tell me, that there are some nice Jews? Of course, the, just to be clear, when Netanyahu, for propaganda and PR reasons, says that from the river to the sea is, is Israel, he, of course, does not mean to expel the Arab Israelis that you were mentioning who elected Mansour Abbas to the Israeli parliament, which I think would shock many people who did not know that, that there are Arab members of the Israeli parliament, there's Arab members of the Israeli Supreme Court, um, but that the Hamas from the river to the sea does not allow for uh, Jews to have uh, a presence in the land of of Palestine uh, as a minority. You disagree? How come that you say it? According to what? I mean, well, I, well, the original charter and their subsequent remarks after October seventh was uh, first that they, they, they like to kill Jews, and second, they would repeat October seventh millions of times. Now, maybe a million times. Maybe they meant by that until they were allowed to run uh, the state of current state of Israel as a. Well, I don't know what you would call it, a theocracy. There would, there would be Jews there with minority rights. There's no, there's no Arab country right now where, where Jews can live comfortably. So it, it's, okay. not, it's not an encouraging idea from the river to the sea for Jewish people. Yes, but... In, in Hamas's words. Yeah, it's not encouraging. The, this is, I, I, I can understand. It's not encouraging for the Palestinian, the Jewish state from the river to the sea. But Hamas, according to Hamas charter... That most people do know what it is written, what written in it without reading it. Hamas Charter includes also the very, it's, it's Article 31. I'm not a, you know, a spokesperson for, for Hamas, but I spokesperson for truth. Go. It, it, it's, it says that under Islam, Jews and Christian and everybody can live peacefully under the rule of Islam. So it's not about expelling the Jews. It's about Jews accepting the sovereignty of Islam. In the Holy Land. Now, there is the Article 7 or 8 with the story about, about the, 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 the trees 
that would tell that there are Jews be behind us, which is a story for about the last day, not about political, uh, uh, I don't know, settlement, it's not settlement, political behavior today. So it's totally different. And people, I mean, this is exactly what I'm trying to avoid. I mean, if you want to, to not you personally, but if one wants to, 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 to quote Hamas Charter, better he reads it from the beginning to the end and look at the discrepancies within it. I mean, this is very important. I mean, and it's been my, revised since since its original. No, the uh, original. Publication. I speak about the original, which is more anti-Semitic. Even yeah. in the original, they they accept Jews. Now, of course, we say, we can say no. We don't want to live under Islam. Okay, this is our right. We want independent, whatever. But we have to be accurate about what they say. Agreed. Uh, Hill is trying to ruin all of my preconceived beliefs, which I which I appreciate. Um, but I want to I want to come back to something you said about uh, the West Bank and and paying attention to actions versus uh, de words. So again, for listeners unaware, the the West Bank, which uh, was acquired by Israel in the defense, what most people would say is the defensive war of 1967. Israel suddenly inherited uh, a large number of, of Palestinians. Uh, Israel felt, Israeli leaders felt that that land was crucial to create a buffer zone uh, to reduce the risk of future wars from our national neighbors, Jordan, for example, or Syria in the case of the northern, uh, of the, um, in, in the Galilee. So that land was, was taken and, uh, then the question was, well, what, what, what's going to happen there? And of course, originally it was a full military occupation. This really, we didn't annex it. It was supposed to be negotiated whether we would give it back with certain terms. But eventually, the, the Israeli army was basically running it. And then, over the years, we have ceded. Israel has ceded, C E D E D, ceded control increasingly to the Palestinian Authority, but not completely. So it is still, of course. There's an Israeli army that frequently goes into places like Janin and other places to stop what we fear are terrorist attacks. But it's not pleasant to live there. Uh, it's not pleasant to live there under the Palestinian Authority. It's not pleasant to live there with the presence of the Israeli army. And the, the, the cooperation between those two is fraught with all kinds of problems. But the point is, is that after 1967... Many Israeli settlers created towns and cities in that territory, which are islands of Jewish settlement within this uh, more, much more widely Arab population. Um, but here's what I want to ask you. So just, that was just for clarification. When people say that settlements are the problem, the barrier to peace, which is what you just suggested, that that the expansion of the settlers from 100,000 to 200,000 and now almost 500,000, that's what is, is part of the problem. A lot of people say, oh, yeah? Well, how come in 1929 they slaughtered Jews when there were no settlements? There wasn't even a state. Now, there are many answers to that, but, but I want to ask, you, I'm going to let you answer that, and then I want you to talk about a more practical and, and interesting, I think, uh, historical question. You suggested that a lot of Palestinians have become accepting of the fact that there's a Jewish presence in what they call Palestine and what we call the state of Israel. Um, and by the way, we've said nothing about the religious challenges of this problem, which you, you talk about in your book very, very thoughtfully. But but over a hundred years, there is a a bunch of people who have become accepting that okay, so there's a Jewish presence there, and it's a Jewish state, and maybe we should live with that. But we want our own state too. And then I think uh, the question is, I think the practical strategic question is, first of all, is that, is, do you, you think that's true? You, see, you seem to think it is. And then secondly, uh, a lot of people would argue that, well, that's what the settlements are. The, the eventually, they could tolerate the presence of, of Jews in the West Bank as well. True or false? Well, not true or false. No <laughs> such I, thing. Bad question. How do you, what do you how do you think about these issues? No, no, it's a nice question. I mean, even in true or false, I, I, I think that this is what uh, what the right wing believed before uh, October seven, and what we see is that it doesn't work like that. I believe that they they still believe in it. 
I mean, that more power would would uh, bring... I mean, this idea of the Iron Wall of Jabotinsky. In 1923, Jabotinsky published his famous article, The Iron Wall, in which he said that native people usually wouldn't accept foreign settlements among them. But, and this is very natural, so he really understood the Arab rejection of Zionism. But he added that if we will be strong enough, if we build uh, an Iron Wall between them and us, and they would understand that they cannot actually uh, uh, expel us or take us out of the country, they would accept our presence. Now, this this is partly true, of course, but the problem with Zionism, if I might say us as Zionists, the problem if, if, of Zionism is what is called in, in, in Arabic tawasu'iyya, meaning ex- uh, 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 expanding itself all the time. I mean, okay, you put an iron wall in the 48 border and we accepted it. So now you move it farther to the east in order to take more land. And then you want more and more and more. So this is not iron wall. This is curtain that you move everywhere when you, to where you want. And if it's curtain, it cannot stand attacks. And this is, this is the situation that we are here. We made our iron wall into a curtain. Uh, two things, uh, or maybe more. First, for listeners who've never, I don't think the word Jabotinsky has ever been mentioned on the program. So Zev Jabotinsky was a, uh, he's called a revisionist Zionist. Uh, that essay, I think we'll find a link online for it, of 1923, is really an extraordinary essay. He, many of the Zionists uh, before him and many after said, Zionism, a Jewish state in the land that is called Palestine, uh, the Arabs will like it. And of course, some do. It, it, there's there's a lot of advantages to living here as an Arab as opposed to, say, in Gaza or in the West Bank or in Syria. So Arab Israelis uh, who are you know full citizens, uh, they may be uneasy with the Jewish state. They may prefer something different, but they it's not the worst thing that could happen to someone living in the Middle East. But there was a certain idealism and and romanticism and really dishonesty in suggesting that that we we as Jews coming to the our ancestral homeland, a phrase we haven't mentioned yet, part of our moral high ground, uh, we would be embraced. It would be great. We'd create a great you know the desert would bloom, which it has, and there'd be a great high tech sector, and it'll all be good. And of course, many Arabs work in the high tech sector, and it's it's all great. They're going to love us. It's going to be fantastic. Well, that was. Jabotinsky in 1923 said, that's a lie. <laughs> These are people who've lived here for a long time. They haven't had their own state. Doesn't matter. They've lived in, as you point out very, very powerfully in the book, they live with under Arab rule. It may not be Palestinian rule, the way we think of we'll nationalism, see. but it's not Jewish rule. And they're not going to like living under Jewish rule. And uh, Jabotinsky said, let's not condescend and treat them like some kind of primitives who who we can bribe with the candy of material well-being that might accompany the creation of the Jewish state, which turned out to be true. Incredible standard of living here compared to the rest of the, of the Middle East in our immediate neighborhood and certainly for, for the Arab Israelis who live here. He said, don't, don't, be, don't treat them like children, like we can bribe them with candy. They're going to have national aspirations and tribal feelings. And the only way that we can survive here is that iron wall. So I, I, that's just background again for, for listeners. What I, what I have trouble with with the narrative, as you said, is that, that it's a curtain. They're always moving it. When we move it, because they, they start wars with us, right? We didn't, we didn't want to move the curtain in 1967 if they hadn't surrounded us with armies massed to, to attack us. That was not a, an offensive war to gain territory. But I see you shaking your head on the YouTube version of this. So, so explain why I'm wrong. Look, I, I'm not here to debate with you about Zionism or about uh, <laughs> politics. I, I, what I do as a historian is to try to make people understand the other side. My, my own view, sometimes, of course, I, 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 I tell it, I, I don't hide my views, but my views were shaped by many, 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 many hours of talking with Palestinians from Hamas, from Fatah, from none of them, people who worked in Israel, people who never worked in Israel, with intellectuals, with farmers. This is what I did for 30 years, okay? So what I'm trying to do is to help people who want it. Now, 
I, I would add, I understand that many people do not want to know or to understand the Palestinian version of reality or Palestinian perspective or whatever, because it doesn't fit what they want to hear. And I, 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 I have, I, I know many times when I start, uh, I don't know, a lecture, I say, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to say things that you might not be interested in. If you feel uncomfortable, feel comfortable to leave. I mean, people uh, to be uneven as they don't want it. They, they want something to strengthen them, especially in, in times of conflict, of bloodshed. Why should we understand the other? Okay, I understand this view. I understand it. But this is what I do. This is the only, one of the only things that I can do. And, uh, and it is based, uh, so when I say this is what the Palestinian feel, I mean, so, so, so to tell me, no, I, I think differently. Okay, think differently. I, I mean, maybe I also think differently. Not everything that people tell me, I accept. I, I sit, I sit with settlers. I sit with people from, from, from who are going to pray in the Temple Mount, Jews who pray in the Temple Mount. Because I have to understand. I have to, to know what they feel, what they think, what are, are the political views. And then I can tell this to the Palestinians and this to the Jews. And, and I, I teach, you know, crowd, crowds who, who, who are consisted of Palestinian and Israeli together. And I tell them both narratives. I mean, if you want to take it, take it. But to, de- to, to, to debate with me, okay, my opinions are insignificant. I mean, even my kids don't ask me what I think. I mean, sometimes they do. Who cares? Uh, you're not alone there. <laughs> My kids don't ask me what I think often, very often either, but I, I, I take your point. I didn't mean to debate you about whether their feeling about a curtain was, was right or wrong, but, you're, but that's an important point, right? That that's the way they see it. Um, I may feel that they're wrong to see it that way. I may feel that, that they don't have as rich an understanding, but I could be wrong as well, of course. Um, you are wrong. About you, are, you are wrong. You are wrong. Which part? I, I tell you the exact part. No, generally you, you are right, and I'm fascinated by your by by your insights. But ab- about about the very point of the wall and the curtain, Israeli settlement in the West Bank was not a result of a war. It was in oh, I order. Agree. It I was, agree. Yeah, it was in order to prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. When Ariel Sharon was the Minister of Agriculture and then the Minister of Defense. He said it so many times, go to the West Bank, live there so that there will not be a Palestinian state. So if we go to the former question of yours, so how come that they don't care about Israeli democracy and the peace movement in Israel? They don't care because they see what is really going on on the ground. Fair enough. I didn't mean to dispute that. And I, and I, and I, I certainly agree that, that the settlements, although there's a religious component we're not going to get into, uh, w- was very much a realpolitik move to to reduce the the likelihood of a Palestinian state, which could debate again whether that's good or bad. Doesn't not relevant right now. I was reacting more to, to the 1948 uh, part, so I think we're on the same page. Um, let's close. We'll come. Let's come to the future. Um, you know, one of the hard things right now for me living here and spending too much time on X, formerly known as Twitter, is the dueling narratives of both sides of who has the moral high ground in Gaza in, on October 7th, the disbelief that certain things didn't, did or did not happen. Of course, one of the most extraordinary parts of this historic moment is that unlike you who had to spend those many, 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 many hours in the archives – digging through and discovering documents that had were not well known is that a lot of October 7th appears to have been broadcast. It was recorded, posted on social media. Uh, we have a lot of footage and there is always the uncertainty, especially in the future about whether footage is real or not. It looks, it looks pretty real. It certainly was revealed in real time. It wasn't posted months later and changed and, and different. So we have, we have something slightly different than we had in, in 1929. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> We've all got our own narratives. We have our own facts. Uh, tragedies happen. Uh, there's a debate about whether it, it really happened, who actually did it. And, and these are 
are part of of a, a form of entertainment, a form of sport, a form of collecting hits and clicks and eyeballs. It's 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 pretty depressing. So my question is, given you that you've for 15 years or however long it was, you explored the reality of 1929. Now it's 2024 or in the aftermath of October 7th. It looks like the more things change, the more they stay the same. As I said, there, there's so many parallels when you read your book. When they wrote it, it published it nine years ago, it's, um, it could have been written today about today's events. There were heroes on both sides helping do the right thing, but there's a lot of bloodshed on both sides. Uh, I do think I have the moral high ground, but I'm open to the understanding that it is more complicated. I don't think it's, well, both sides do bad things. There's nothing more to say. I don't agree with that. Again, for listeners, I definitely think that's the wrong attitude. But it is looks really similar, and it's almost 100 years. You got any optimism uh, for for our both our people and our neighbors about how this might get better? And you can react to anything else I said as well. Since October 7, I uh, swear, swore that when I ask this question, I say, yes, I have optimism. Before, I said I don't have any optimism because I knew that 7 October is coming. We all knew. Actually, we all knew. And we tried to, you know, to close our eyes, and we did. Uh, every person who deals with, with, with Israel-Palestine affairs uh, can show you a couple of pieces that he, he wrote or she wrote that in a couple of, I mean, it's a matter of months or years that such eruption would happen. It, it, it was clear. This is why I was not uh, optimistic before. And now the question is whether we, both Palestinian and Israelis, with uh, maybe the help of, you know, the international community, would feel that we reached the, the level of bloodshed that we can now try to find another way to live together. So this is a kind of optimism, not the best optimism, but yeah. That's it? <laughs> That's the best you could do? Yeah. It's, um, uh, yeah. Maybe you can find a better optimist than my I'm I looking. Am, you know. I'm looking. My guest today has been Hillel Cohen. His book is Year Zero of the Arab-Israeli Conflict, 1929. Hello, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.